forgot we had a show bible. That's neat. <laughs> yeah, we should use it, probably. That's true. <laughs> And welcome to The Sunday Presents, a podcast with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. The Sunday is a blog we created in 2017 because we were telling each other too much of our own opinions about film and TV and stuff. And just like staying up all night just talking about films and TVs. And at a certain point, we're just kind of like, probably write this down. And we did. <laughs> and uh, this is a podcast we started like... Last year or something? I don't know. Unless you're <laughs> listening to this in the future. In which case, whatever. In each episode, either I will make Dean watch one of my favorite films that he's never seen, or vice versa. This episode, I made Dean watch... Two films that I'd never seen. Not the first time Kira has pulled this on me, despite only being like 14 episodes into the, into the show. I'm sorry. Um, it's fine. I've In I've... all cases it was necessary. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I watched Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, the nineteen thirties films directed by James Whale, which which created horror, basically. Well, well. you got you gotta fudge that a bit. They they certainly created Hollywood horror. So basically we're the Wu Tang clan. Exactly. But better. Yeah. Well, as soon as I said it, I was kind of like, I'm maybe not. Do you want to tell us about Frankenstein, brackets, 1931, closed brackets, and not any other versions of Frankenstein? Yes, uh, I, will, I, will, I will say zero things about the book at this point, I think, even though it's my favorite book. That's the end of the sentence. Okay, we'll talk about the book. We'll talk about yeah. the book. It's a good book. Everyone should read it. They should. Frankenstein, 1931 opens with a warning from actor Edward Van Sloan, who played Van Helsing opposite yeah. Bela Lugosi in Dracula earlier that year, and appears in Frankenstein as Frankenstein's mentor, Dr. Waldman. And I'll read the warning and then either cut myself reading it and replace it with the clip or leave it in the scene. How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. And then into a lovely credit <laughs> sequence with swirling eyes and faces and stuff. It's very German of this period. Like, you could tell straight away before the and, film uh... itself is... Has, has properly begun that, that James Whale is a big fan of German expressionism. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, the monster is played by question mark. 
Yes. In so the, credits, there was the a- monster is played by question mark. Yeah, there was two things I wanted to note about the credits. The first one was the monster who, as we all should know, was played by Bar- Bars Karlov, is credited as question mark. And the other Karlof, thing is that Karlof, the story Karlof, credit... Karlof, Karlof. The, the other thing is the story credit is not for Mary Shelley. It is for Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. That is not the I, story I, credit. I, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. But it's certainly interesting, given Bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> that in this one it's credited to Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. So in our first proper scene, we are introduced uh, immediately to Dr. Henry Frankenstein and his hunchback assistant, Fritz. They're, they're watching a funeral from a distance, and then once, once it's over, they, they go immediately in and, and start robbing the grave for parts. Henry Frankenstein is a very interesting choice of name because for some reason there is another character in this <laughs> barely a character called Victor and you could cut Victor yeah. right out of the whole film and no problem I, or, I, every time gonna or do, I give like, him a different name <laughs> yeah yeah but for some reason it's, it's Dr. Henry Frankenstein his friend his friend who we'll meet shortly is Victor Marth Anyway, as he and Fritz are leaving the graveyard with the stolen body, they uh, stop on the way to steal a hanged man from a gallows. All that Henry is missing at this point in the story is a brain that's in decent condition. So he sends Fritz to go rob one from the local medical college, and he watches a lecture where a doctor has both a quote-unquote normal brain and a quote-unquote abnormal brain, which he describes as criminal and degenerate, and he's like... It has a shriveled up lobe and all this. It's it's very Nazi of him. That's all I'll say. After the lecture, Fritz breaks in and he picks up the normal brain and he gets a, a light shock and drops it and then goes back and gets the abnormal brain instead. Does he swap the labels? He doesn't swap the labels, no. I, I guess he must have ripped it off on the way because Henry is surprised later to discover this. Yeah, Henry did not realize that he grab the abnormal brain. Meanwhile, Henry's fiance Elizabeth, has called on their mutual friend Victor to help her find Henry, because he's locked himself away in seclusion to work on his experiments. And they talk to his old professor, Dr. Waldman, and Dr. Waldman is like, oh yeah, he was so very brilliant and obsessed with creating life. Uh, not sure where he is now. No, wait, Waldman knows where he is, right? Like, he, he takes them. To this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. At some point, Henry's father also gets involved, but I can't, I can't quite. He's not really a character either. He's a stock British comedy archetype. He's a somewhat buffoonish older rich guy who keeps pestering other people for information or assistance, but then when they give it to him, if he doesn't like it, he just refuses to hear it and and keeps going. And he's definitely the most tonally weird part of Frankenstein because he's just like he, he's straight from like a musical stage or something and just wandered into a high <laughs> for some reason anyway they all go see Henry at his watchtower where he reveals that he has perfected his process for creating human life using rays beyond ultraviolet or some shit <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of you, you taught me about ultraviolet rays but I have gone beyond the ultraviolet rays <laughs> Like, what do you think ultra means, dude? (laughs) 
everybody except Henry and Fritz seems to think this is all pretty insane and or fucked up. And they're like, please come home. And Henry's like, no, in fact, stay while I complete my experiment. And you you know what happens if you've if you've experienced pop culture, there's arcing electricity on these random tools, and then there's the body gets lifted up and sh- struck by lightning and stuff, and you know it's alive. 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 Oh, that fellow at Radio Shack said I was mad. Well, who's mad now? <laughs> and the monster is played by Bars Karloff, obviously. And initially, our exposure to the monster, he's created, and then basically time skips forward a few days, during which time Henry has been keeping him in the dark for some reason. Like, literally, like, keeping him in darkness for no apparent reason. And then he invites the monster into a room with him and Dr. Waldman, and he opens a skylight, and the monster sees light for the first time, and holds, lifts up his hands towards it, and his eyes uh, open wide, and it's, like, very moving and beautiful. And then Fritz comes in carrying a torch, and the monster's like, ooh, that's scary. Ah, get away, get away. And they're like, the monster's got, lost all control! We need to... <laughs> we need to subdue him and drag him to the dungeon! <laughs> And Henry's like, oh no, what have I done? What that's have I done? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, Fritz, it's not just Fritz. Like, Fritz comes in holding the the torch. Mm. And the monster is like, ah, I'm scared, I'm scared. And then and then Fritz starts fucking waving it in his face. It's crazy. Yeah. So they get the monster down to the dungeon and tie him up. And Henry and Dr. Waldman leave Fritz in there with the monster, which was not a good idea. They talk about mm. how... Like, can the monster still be taught to be a person or whatever? And they're like, or is this just an abomination of nature? Then they go back in and Fritz is hanging from where the monster was bound in the same position as the guy he cut down to make the monster earlier. Like the same, same face the same way from the camera. And Waldman and, and, and Henry come up with an astonishingly complicated plan to subdue the monster, which is to get the monster to walk in one direction while Dr. Waldman comes at it fr- from behind and sticks a needle in it. They, they talk out and execute this plan in what seems like an absurd amount of screen time. Which is probably only like... It's probably less than a minute, but it still seems like absurd how much time they spend explaining the plan to each other. <laughs> and but then, um, yeah, they subdue the monster, and Henry goes home to rest for his wedding, and Dr. Waldman's like, I'll take care of the monster, as in, I will, I will take it apart. Yeah, I'll take care of him. The swamp monster will take care of them. Oh, oh, that kind of take care of them. But then, just as Dr. Waldman is about to begin the vivisection, for some reason, he left one of the monster's hands completely unbound, and the monster just, like... <laughs> He leans over to listen to the monster's heartbeat, and the monster just, like, grabs him with one hand and just, like, crushes him. He's very strong. He is very strong. Yes. Henry, at one point, after they put the monster in the dungeon, Fritz is mercilessly beating the monster with a bullwhip, and Henry's only concerns are, one, you'll wake the neighbors, and two, he's ten times stronger than you, be careful. Those are his only concerns <laughs> about his assistant bullwhipping this being that he's brought to life. He's, 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 he's not a very nice man, is Henry. 
<laughs> anyway, the monster breaks free and kills Waldman. Then he goes, like, you know, wandering around a bit. Uh, and he comes across a little girl. And the little girl's not afraid of him. And, in fact, shows him, like, what flowers are. And shows if you take the head of a flower and throw it into the water, it'll float on the, on the water like a boat. They're next to this lake. And the monster is delighted by this. He does it with a flower, and he's like, this is nice. Uh, and then he realizes they're out of flowers, so he picks up the little girl and throws her into the lake. And even though she is, I would I would guess, at most three feet from the shore, and he has arms as long as he does, he is not able to pull her out of the water after throwing her in, and she drowns. Alrighty. Someone comes to town to tell Henry that they found Dr. Waldman's body, that he's dead. And Henry's like, it's the monster. And then he hears a groaning in the house. And he's like, the monster's here. And he starts running around the house and is mainly slowed down by having such a big fucking house, incidentally. He just keeps, he searches like five rooms on one floor and it's not even all the rooms on that floor. And he's the monster's not on that floor. But anyway, <laughs> the monster like accosts Elizabeth in her room and Elizabeth is scared. That's, his, that's Henry's fiance. And she like faints in terror or whatever. And then... The monster runs away, and the little girl's dad shows up, carrying her body the whole way through the streets, and then, you know, he demands the monster be killed. And so it's time for the mob with the torches and pitchforks, except I checked, there are no pitchforks. It is a mob with lish torches and unlish torches. For some <laughs> Guess they had no spare fit pitchforks at the time. They, they all go looking. Eventually, Henry finds the monster on his own. He gets separated from the group, by which I mean he goes the direct, the correct direction, and they don't for some reason. Uh, he's like shouting at them, "Come back! It's over here!" But he's not even shouting that loud. He should be trying a bit already. Um, Henry finds the monster, but he's on his own, and uh, also the monster is learning and is no longer afraid of a, a single man holding a torch. <laughs> so he overpowers Henry and knocks him unconscious, and carries him over his shoulder to a windmill that's nearby. And the mob notice him carrying Henry, and they surround the windmill, the door of which is blocked when they go in, like a beam falls. And the monster's going up the stairs, trying to find a way out, because he hasn't, he's learned a, very, a little bit, but he hasn't learned that much. He he's gets only the, a couple of days old. He's yes. a little baby. Yes, I agree. And he, he gets to the top floor, and he goes out to the balcony, and is like, at the villagers, and they're like, <laughs> There he is! And then Henry comes to and gets up and he, like, you know, tries to escape by by climbing down from the balcony. But then the monster grabs him and pulls him up and there's a struggle. And eventually the monster gets pissed off at Henry for trying to climb down. And so he picks him up over his head and just, like, throws him up. And he lands on one of the windmill blades as he's going down and then on the ground. And I, did, I just want to mention that for, for no good reason that I can tell... Uh, the monster's entire body is chroma keyed out during those bits. Like, so it's just the ghostly ha- head and hands of the monster throw throw Henry up. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I assume it was an error, but I don't care. And now that Henry's out of the thing, the villagers are all like, let's just burn the windmill down because only the monster's inside. So they do. And, you know, the, mo- the monster dies horribly and tragically uh, burned up in the windmill. And then there's a very pat ending where Henry's buffoonish father comes out of the room where Henry's recovering and is like, 
all the maids who are all giggling about it for some reason are like excited <laughs> to bring Mr. Henry his sh- some champagne, and then. His dad's like, oh, yes, he'd love that. Then he looks at him through the door. He's like, actually, he wouldn't like that. Closes the door, repeats an earlier toast to his own family, and then the film ends. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that final scene. I thought I just ended with the with the windmill breaking down. Mean? How it should, how it should <laughs> end? Yeah. This is insane. This is- of well, all the characters is- to end it with. But him, him saying... To the son of Frankenstein is interesting because Henry is is the son of Frankenstein, but you know who else is the son of Frankenstein? The monster. The monster. I want to just, like, drop in a little terminology note. Oh, about us calling him the monster? Yeah. I okay. we're, we're, we're calling him the monster because that's what he's called like, in the franchise, in, in the universal horror films. I would normally call him the creature, probably. But also, he is referred to as Frankenstein by Frankenstein <laughs> during the events of this film. Frankenstein refers to him as Frankenstein. So, at least as far as the Universal Films goes, Frankenstein is the Doctor and Frankenstein is the monster in both senses. Watch this, I bet they're all going to call Frankenstein's monster a Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, which is wrong, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's a Frankenstein, isn't it? That's the correct pronunciation. No, 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 no. Frank, no. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the core, the core element of any Frankenstein story is who's the real Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> only joking. Who's the real monster? And it's Dr. Frankenstein is the answer. Yes, um, in, in all situations, <laughs> it's Dr. Frankenstein. Human sympathy should always be with a monster. Do you remember, this was years and years ago, there was like a an attempt in the right-wing press to um, do a like a, they weren't calling it woke culture yet, but like a, a woke culture moral panic about kids in school learning that the monster is sympathetic. I don't remember this, but... <laughs> That is a bunch of people who have n- never read the book or watched almost any Frankenstein movie. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. What? <laughs> that's what makes it so good. <laughs> that's, that's Frankenstein's really bad guy. Look at him. <laughs> he's, he's like monstrous and so forth. He killed that little girl. Definitely deliberately and with with, with uh, malice, malice in all... his heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I want to <laughs> just going through my notes. I want to note that when I say that. That, that Henry's dad is a stock British comedy character. Like, he literally laughs like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At certain, <laughs> at multiple points. Like, he's, he's an actual, like, vaudeville character who is for some reason involved in this movie. So, the thing about Frankenstein, and Brian Frankenstein, but we're talking about Frankenstein, yeah. is that, like, if you were a person in the world, in modern times the frankenstein that exists in your imagination is this frankenstein yes and like you i also read the book before i saw either of the films Mm. and the book is a really surprising read because you know all the iconography of frankenstein and even the narrative of frankenstein that exists in your head is not from the book it's from this movie frankenstein the book has a is an epistolary novel that's like 
a letter from a guy on a boat talking about what he heard from Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who he picked up. And like in Dr. Frankenstein's narrative, he reads, he hears from the monster's point of view about things. Yeah, he reads the monster's diary. Oh, like... It's very like the prestige. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I always thought growing up with the people reading also, each, other's, <laughs> each other's unreliable and in fact sometimes deceptive accounts of their own lives. Also, Frankenstein's monster in the book is is super sexy, mm. which is no shade on Boris Karloff, <laughs> but they did not go in a particularly sexy direction. <laughs> no, I would not. That's not how I would describe also, like the events of the film Frankenstein take place over the course of a few days, and the events of the of the novel Frankenstein take place over the course of many years. Yeah. Um, like there's a whole extended period of time where, and they lift some of the some stuff from the novel for Bride as well. Yeah. Um, but there's like a really long period where the where the monster is living like in the woods near a family, and he makes friends with like the daughter, and is able to kind of survive doing little tasks and getting food from from her and stuff. And then the family finds him, and they're like, "What the fuck is that?" And he he like yeah. They're, 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 the the book is quite different. Yeah, but I th- I think that makes this film especially interesting because. Mm. It is kind of the the source text of of yeah. Frankenstein, even as it is an adaptation of an adaptation, because it's based on a play. Yeah, uh, which notably was the first Frankenstein media to refer to the monster as Frankenstein. Oh, I didn't realize that. So that's why that's in the movie. <laughs> huh. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. The way that it's it's the source text, even though it's not literally the source text, reminds me of how like The Wizard of Oz is not very, yeah. that similar to the book The Wizard of Oz or <laughs> or any of L. Frank Baum's Oz books. Like Dorothy's just not like a teenager; she's like a small girl in in The Wizard of Oz book. The version of The Wizard of Oz in everyone's head, the version that we riff on, that we do parodies of in TV shows, that's the film version of of The Wizard of Oz. That's true, uh, which is very good. <laughs> it is. Hot it take. Is. You know what other film is good? Frankenstein. Frankenstein is good. Oh, um, I'm glad to hear that. I'll I'll say up front that like I didn't love I didn't love them. Not in a way where like I felt like let down by them or anything. I just they just didn't click with they didn't me. Didn't vibe with you. Yeah, not as much as say The Invisible Man, which James Whale made between these two films, which I watched. It was the last film I watched last year. Can we talk about James Whale for a second? Yes. Do you have some prepared remarks or no? I have, I have some prepared remarks. Prepare statement. James Whale, the director of both these films, as well as between them, The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. He was an English film and theatre director. He didn't start off making horror films. He started off making war films. When Howard Hughes wanted to remake one of his own war films as a talkie, he hired James Whale to direct the, the, sound, the new sound bits. Because he reused all the old aerial footage, obviously. He just he just added dialogue. So we got James Wells directed. He was a real cheapo that yeah. he used. Can I can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Um, did James Well and Howard Hughes fuck each other? I, I, I'm not aware of that being the okay. case, but that's not to say it's not the case. Okay, just checking. Dean looked it up after the recording. They don't seem to have fucked each other, but they both fucked Randolph Scott, the cowboy actor. So there's that. 
Anyway, James Whale, his breakthrough as a director was a war film called Journey's End. And then he made another war film called Waterloo Bridge. And they were both really successful financially and critically. And, you know, he signed a deal with Universal back back in those days. You would sign like sign up to be a director at a studio and you'd work there for like, you know, five or ten years or whatever. And you basically most of the time you just had to direct whatever you were told to direct. And depending on your own like abilities as a director and your abilities to draw as a draw to get make money for the studio, you will get more create more or less freedom. And also, of course, how how well you get on with your boss, because this is a time when there's literally just like two guys at the head of every studio. There's the owner and the head of production. In this case, the owner of Universal Studios was Carl Lamley, whose name was mentioned in the intro. And the head of production was his son, Carl Lamley Jr. And Carl Lamley Jr. and James Whale got on great. Carl Lamley Jr. thought Whale was a great director, and Whale made them money, got them good reviews. So in, in 1930, or 1931, I can't remember which. It's 1931. They didn't take more than a year to make a film at this point. <laughs> in 1931, Carl Lamley Jr. goes to James Whale, and he says, look, here's everything we have the film rights to. Take your pick. And James Whale picks up a play version of Frankenstein, something he could have made a film about anyway, because it was in the public domain. But whatever. And he makes Frankenstein in 1931, and it's it's a huge success. It's Frankenstein. Yeah, it's it changes, changes the world. it changes the world. Like it may not invent literally horror cinema, but it creates the horror as like an industry genre. Yeah, as like it is because of Frankenstein that horror films are marketed as horror films to horror fans. You know, like it's that's why. Yeah, that's not it's not just like sometimes you when you're making a thriller, it's a horror movie or whatever it's yeah. like this is a very specific and one of the most enduring yeah yeah so frankenstein was a big success and over the next couple of years he didn't just make those those horror films we mentioned the old dark house and the invisible man he was actually james whale was afraid of being typecast as a horror director because it wasn't that wasn't good then yeah <laughs> Being a horror director couldn't bring you any pride <laughs> or prestige in the 1930s. Or so he thought, anyway. But he did get lured back for Never the old Dark House, The Invisible Man, and Bride of Frankenstein. And yes, in fact, if he had remained, if he had decided to get pigeonholed as a horror director, his whole career would have worked out much better. Because what actually happened <laughs> is Universal Studios went bust, the Lamleys were out. And the new owners came in, and they did not have the same repartee with James Whale. And when James Whale made a sequel to All's Quiet on the Western Front, based on a book, he didn't just like... Based on the the sequel book to that book, he didn't just decide he was going to (laughs) do an All Quiet on the Western Front sequel. It ended up getting... All's Loud on the Eastern Front. (laughs) It ended up being censored because it was going to piss off the Nazis too much. This was in 1937. And, uh, like, people in Hollywood, like, backed James Whale to the hilt. He got the support of, like, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League and stuff. But just the producer guy, the guy who replaced Carl Lovely Jr., like, at the last minute, he was like, nah, we'll cut what the Germans want. And then the Germans banned it in, in Germany anyway. And it was a huge flop. And... He did a couple more films, but it was just like flop, 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 flop. The only 
somewhat successful film he did was Man the Iron Mask in 1939. And when his contract was up for renewal, it was not renewed. And he just never made a film again. He tried to make some stuff. He did shoot, I think he shot maybe a, a, a PSA thing during World War II, like an internal military video. And he did direct some theater, and even during World War II, he like he basically put together a troop, and they took over a theater that wasn't being used because of the war. And they were like, yeah. "Let's just make this uh, like one-stop shop for entertainment for for the troops when they're home." Like he would reserve like two thirds of the seat would would only be for service members and stuff, uh, even when such numbers of service members were not <laughs> available. <laughs> and yeah, in his later life, he took to, as so many did to, to to the old pills and booze and stuff there's one big thing i haven't mentioned about james Whale. yeah 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 yeah, yeah here yeah. is like <laughs> re- getting real anti about but i just want to get <laughs> i just want to get the narrative out of the way um, yeah okay and he he in his in his retirement he he did a lot of painting and then a year before he died he had a horrible stroke and when he was well enough to move back to his house one day in 1957 i think he, you know, was on his pills and stuff, and he wrote a suicide note and went into his pool and died. R.I.P. And it was actually initially ruled a um, accidental death because his lover kept the note hidden until shortly before her, his own death many years later. The other thing about James Whale is that he was openly gay throughout his entire career. Yeah. That's what you was getting at. <laughs> it's very important. It's especially yeah. important when we talk about Bride of Frankenstein, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. You do have to wonder if, if a heterosexual maid all's loud on the Eastern Front or whatever, <laughs> that would that would their career have been scuppered? That is that is a good question. And and it's not even a straightforward question because I would describe the interwar period as a period where attitudes about gender and sexuality and stuff were very much in flux. They yeah. Were, yeah. Just so people have like a like a a sense, um, there there were other openly gay directors in in Hollywood at that time, and mm. also uh, many extremely closeted directors. Yes, the probably the most famous gay director is probably George Cooker. Is that how you pronounce um, it? How else would you pronounce it? George Cooker. I've never heard anyone say it that way, but maybe well, then you're probably I don't right. Know. And the winner is. Mr. George Cukor. He was known for being a great women's director, which, in hindsight, one can only assume means was a homosexual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People are obviously taught to think that that rights and stuff progress in a in a linear fashion, and uh, things are always getting better. And it's like the 20th century specifically is like <laughs> gay rights surging and then being subject to vicious backlash yeah. over and over and over and over again. This has almost become a cliche now, but like the Institute of Sexology in Berlin was like the first thing that the Nazis burned after the Reichstag. Uh, speaking of, of censorship, because you talked about the old Nazis, <laughs> the scene where the girl is drowned has a has an interesting history so like the it was controversial on initial release and various places censored it out of the film which is 
a weird decision because if you because what they would do is they have the first half of the scene when he meets the little girl and then cut mm. and if you do that it seems like he did something a lot worse mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, a weird weird decision the Irish Free State Bandit obviously obviously but the important thing is uh this film came out before the Hays Code came in in 35 and when it was reissued in the code era they cut it from the actual film negative so the second half of that scene was lost for a long time until it was rediscovered in the 80s in the british national film archive just cutting it from the actual negative is such a and what a weird thing to cut to be like (laughs) You can't see the girl. Like he throws her into the lake, and then you it just, is. You... I mean, it is very disturbing when he kills her. But like, it's it's yeah. It's not like graphic or like. You just see the monster's back, like go towards the lake. He's kind of grasping and going like, uh, yeah. and there's you know generic water noises happening. Yeah, on Foley, yeah. but we tried to tack that happy ending on the picture because back then, well, studio execs, we were we were just dopes in suits, not like today. We should probably talk about Karloff. Karloff, 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 Karloff. Boris Karloff is so good in in both of these films. There's, there's an incredible pathos to his performance mm. and an incredible like physical presence. Right. I really wanted to talk about the physicality. He's scary and sympathetic at the same time, always, which mm. is perfect and hard yeah. to do. <laughs> Yeah, the way he moves, I ca- there were so many times where I was just like, first of all, it, it, it wasn't what I expected from my the idea of Frankenstein in my head of... Arms out, shuffling forward, yeah. His arms are often being lifted up in front of him, but he's reaching to strangle people. He doesn't just walk around like that. <laughs> he only does that while reaching. And he, he does have stiff joints and, and doesn't bend easily, but he's not slow. He's He's unused to walking. Because he's, he's a quite, baby. Yeah, and he's he's like actually quite light on his feet. He can sneak into you know a room. In, you can climb in through a window, sneak into a room, sneak up behind people. When he goes downstairs, he goes downstairs like he's not taking one laborious step after another. He's just like going down the stairs like a person. And and he does kind of like there are moments of of, of like shuffling, but it's it again. It's just like he's not really sure how to be because <laughs> he's only been for a couple of days. And also nothing like him has ever existed. So <laughs> he's, he's not got a lot of role models. Also, everyone he's ever met is horrible. Uh, <laughs> horrible. We'll talk more about this, but it is fascinating how in this film, like they can, they not only do the question mark thing, but they can get away with it. <laughs> because Karloff was like a relatively experienced, like, like not even supporting like secondary character, but like tertiary character yeah. type actor. And then Whale just thought he would, like his physicality would be really good for the monster and it was like yeah you, you come on come on they like they knew each other already and he's like like everybody else in the, in the film uh, as far as i know they're mostly like had been established actors at that point and then karloff genuinely was a mystery to most people and then in the, the next time he appears Frankenstein, he would be billed mononymously like a professional wrestler karloff in Brian of Frankenstein. Well, one of the things about about Frankenstein is that, like, for everyone at home, because we've had this conversation five million times, when sound came in, there was 
in a lot of cases, it was a big step backwards in filmmaking because you now had microphones that you had to work with. So like where the actors stand and how the camera moves, it, it totally changes it, right? For an example, watch the late 20s Marx Brothers film Animal Crackers. I think it's Animal Crackers. Is it Animal Crackers or Coconuts? You're right, it's Coconuts. Animal Crackers is really good. Yeah. Coconuts. Yeah, Coconuts you can't. It's good, but also... It's good because the Marx Brothers are good. It's not good because the filmmaking is, is lighting up the screen. So, <laughs> so Frankenstein, partially because it's that s- small bit later, but it's still very early sound. It, I think it's the filmmaking in it is great. Like it's... Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that in making Frankenstein, James Whale is clearly drawing on like German Expressionism because German Expressionism in some ways is, is, is really suited to this new constraint of the sound camera because German Expressionism brings so many like stagey elements to, to the screen. Like if you have a one location and the characters aren't going to be moving around that much, like German Expressionist like set design and lighting and stuff is going to make the image yeah. much richer. Like there's lots of rooms where none of the walls are actually standing directly up where everything's at odd angles and the matte painted sky that looks like it's uh, dripping like it looks not like the dripping isn't rain it looks like it's running i love that matte painted sky yeah it's great so good (laughs) the design of the monster as well oh yeah uh the bolts in the neck this is the origin of that surely yeah 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 i i assume that when i saw the original bolts in the neck i would be like oh that's where the bolts in the neck came out of but there's actually no narrative reason yeah, or anything yeah, yeah. for the bolts of the neck. I mean, I there. guess it's it's bolting his head to his body, but yeah, because they very specifically they don't say, go into it. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the the head of the hanged man is ruined, but everything else is yeah. fine. They just need like a head and a working brain. So, um, and unfortunately, they got an abnormal brain. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because does it matter that they got an abnormal brain? No. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, there's nothing to suggest that the that the monster has any quote unquote criminal or degenerate tendencies because of he has a criminal and degenerate brain. It's because there is no such thing as a criminal and degenerate brain. Yeah. And therefore yeah. he does yeah. not have one. Yes. But even in the world of the film, there's nothing to suggest there's the, at no moment does the monster engage in unprovoked violence he doesn't well he he kills a little girl unprovoked but he doesn't realize what he's doing yeah that's not violence that's a sad accident he just thought he was throwing her into the lake and it would be fun he thought that if you throw things in water they float which is actually true of people but but not that girl i guess (laughs) it's it's complicated yeah yeah he didn't have time to learn all the rules of what floats and what doesn't and in what circumstance? Yeah, he, he 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 got scared by fire one time, and everyone was just like, "Oh fuck, we gotta destroy this guy." <laughs> he's he's operating under intense. Fire is scary. Yeah, it is. He's right. He could burn himself, and then he burns to death. How are they gonna make a sequel? Will the girls ever escape this literal cliffhanger? Will the mayor ever get back into Townsville? Will Madame Argentina ever share her gumdrops? Well. How they're going to make a sequel is four years later, Carl Emley Jr. gets James Whale on board for a sequel after pestering him for ages about it. 
Jaden Soil didn't want it, but I believe he agreed to do Bride of Frankenstein to get, you know, support for the next two films he was making, which were uh, the, t- the sound adaptation of the very successful Broadway musical Showboat. And then, of course, All's Loud on the Eastern Front was after Showboat. But Just to be clear for everyone at home, uh, that was a joke. That's not what the yeah, the film, the film is called The Road Back. The film is called The Road Back. I would have called it All Quiet on the Western Front too, <laughs> But they weren't really doing that at the time. Carl Lee Jr. coaxes James Whale back to make Bride of Frankenstein in 1935. This film does not open with a warning from a cast member that this might be too scary for you. With Bride of Frankenstein, they go straight into the credits. <laughs> Boris Karloff is just Karloff in huge letters. Like, Carl Lamley presents Karloff in Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. And even on the full cast list, he's, he's, it's just Karloff for whatever But there's a new question mark. Yes, the monster's mate is credited as a question mark this time. The actress who plays the the monster's mate also appears in the first scene of the film as Mary Shelley for some reason, because for no reason, (laughs) Bride of Frankenstein starts with Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron just like hanging out at a house by fireplace. And it's obviously supposed to evoke the famous incident, the famous story writing competition between the three of them and... John William Polidori, the the guy who was at that party that nobody remembers, even though he, he went on to write the first piece of vampire fiction based on a story, what, what went on in that story writing competition. But fuck that guy. Okay. The other credit thing is the story is now credited to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Yeah! Uh, Woo! Feminism. Not, Miss, not Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. In this intro scene, first of all, you can't call it a framing device because it doesn't wrap around. It never comes back up. It doesn't close with the framing device. They never check back in on this. It's just the opening scene for some reason. And it's the three of them much later after Frankenstein, the book has been written. And Lord Byron is like going off about how fucking amazing Frankenstein, the book was. And how it's a shame that Mary Shelley hasn't been able to get anyone to publish it yet. He also makes a bunch of comments like, how could such a pretty young thing come up with such a dark tale? And, but then also, how is it that the mind gave us such a dark tale? It's afraid of lightning and stuff like this. He's like, he, he finds Mary very confusing. And he, he recounts the quote-unquote book, which for some reason is the film, the film Frankenstein from 1931. He's like, ah, the, the first scene, the grave digging scene. And it cuts to, lit, like it's literally clips from Frankenstein, recapping the whole story. And then Mary, after he's done, Mary's like, The publishers did not see that my purpose was to write a moral lesson. The punishment that befell a mortal man who dared to emulate God. And then Byron's like, yeah, and also it was spooky. And Mary's like, do you want to hear more? And he's like, there's more? And the rest of the film is presented as Mary Shelley continuing the tale of Frankenstein for Byron. But we're not wrapping around, we're not checking back in, there's no closing scene. For some reason, there's just this introduction. And then we... we I, think, I think you're being a hater. I'm not being a hater. I'm just... That's what all haters say. <laughs> I, I found the scene strange. That's all, that's all. It's great. So then we, we go... Percy is barely involved, by the way. Just, he's, he's just... Hmm, he's just okay. chilling. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we go into the story and we start at the end of the previous film. The windmill is in ruins. It's been burnt down. For some reason, this time they think Henry has died and then they only find out he's alive when they get him back to the village. Other than that, it's we're at the end of the previous film and there's this woman called Minnie. And Minnie will, in terms of screen time, arguably the main character of the film. She's this old woman who we don't find out for ages works at the Frankenstein house. And she just like... She's this old, old British woman who just like keeps commenting on everything that's happening and is like, well, I hope that monster's dead because he was a frightful thing. So he was and such. And yeah, yeah. everybody else leaves except for the parents of the drowned girl, Maria, and also Minnie, who just stops down the hill a bit, uh, I guess. And the father's like, I need to go into the ruins and fight his charred bones. And the mother's like, well, you'll probably get burnt if you do that. And then what will I have? I have a drowned daughter and a burnt up husband. And then hilariously, hilariously, he falls through a, through a hole in the floor and ends up in this like cave full of water where the monster has also fallen and survived. And then the monster just walks over to him and drowns him too. And then he climbs out of the hole with the help of the woman like who thinks she's helping her husband. <laughs> and then he drowns her too. Just throws her down the hole. I just, it was so funny that the wife was like, a daughter drowned and a husband burnt up, and then the husband is immediately drowned also. And then she's drowned also. And then the monster, like, like goes up to Minnie and is going to hurt Minnie, but then she screams and he runs off, I guess. And so the monster's not, not dead after all. He's he survived. And back in the town or the village or whatever, Henry is, you know, recovering. And he's, on the one hand, torn between the horror of what he's inflicted and also the sense that he was getting close to achieving something truly great in the search for, like, creating life or eternal life or whatever. And he's torn between these two things. And Elizabeth, his fiance, played by a new actress, whatever, which is fine, whatever. Uh, she's like, I see a vision of death in the room with us! Look! There it is. Look. There. I see nothing, Elizabeth. Where? There's nothing. Uh... There! There! It's coming for you! Nero! Henry! 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 Okay, what's he like? He's like a flaming homosexual. That's fair. Let me retake. Okay. And Dr. Pretorius is at the door and Minnie answers. He's like, hello, I am Dr. Yeah, Pretorius. I must, it, see, I must see Henry on urgent, on urgent and grave business. What? That's, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and um, Minnie leads him up the stairs, constantly surprised and stopping to reaffirm that his name is Pretorius. Because she's like, That's <laughs> there's no such name. Um, and brings Dr. Pretorius upstairs. And Dr. Pretorius is like, Henry, I have also been doing work to create life. But we have, we have pursued different paths through, the, through this work. And I think if we work together, we can, we can really create life in ways that aren't so so disappointing um and also if you don't agree to work with me i will tell everybody the monster is still alive 
information I know for some reason. And, <laughs> and I will uh, tell everybody you made the monster and that therefore actually you're responsible for the murders. You know, Henry's like, fine, I'll, I'll continue the work with you. And for a long time, the film is alternating between Henry and Pretorius. So Henry goes to see Dr. Pretorius's lab of him. And Dr. Pretorius explains that while Henry has been getting human flesh together by stealing it from graves and then stitching it together, Dr. Pretorius has been growing it like a culture, like in a Petri dish. And using this process, he has produced six tiny little people that he keeps in jars. They They are, in the terminology of alchemy, they are homunculi, singular homunculus, little, little people made from... And like like Henry says, this isn't science. This is black. This is more like black magic, which is a very very funny thing for literally Doctor Frankenstein <laughs> to say about somebody else's work. One of them's the queen. One yeah, of them's the king. One of them's like the, the archbishop or some shit. Yeah, it's the archbishop and the ballerina and. Yeah. He shows all these tiny little people in jars, and there's this whole little comedy bit where the king, because the king is really, really, really horny for the queen. And he, like, breaks out of his jar and and Pretorius, like, picks him up with a stick and puts him back in. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> How did I never hear this bit of Frankenstein mythos? But yeah, basically what has happened is Pretorius, much more advanced than Henry, can, can grow complete human beings in a jar, but only to the size of that jar. Like, he can only produce them really small. He, tells, he said to Henry, you, you, you found out how to scale, haven't you? But, like, Henry has found out to, how to scale in the sense that he's using dead human bodies to build people. Like, yeah, Henry, Henry is reanimating dead flesh, and Pretorius is, is literally just growing humans from nothing. And somehow, combining these two processes, Pretorius is convinced, will result in the ability to truly create life. What a world-astounding collaboration we should be, you and I, together. No. No, no, no. Leave the charnel house and follow the lead of nature. Or of God, if you like your Bible stories. Male and female created he them. Be fruitful and multiply. Create a race, a man-made race upon the face of the earth. Why not? Meanwhile, while while they're they're working on this, the monster is, you know, running around the countryside. It's kind of lumbering through trees and stuff, and, and he he comes across a shepherdess and she screams when she sees him and falls into a pond. And he has figured out what drowning is at this point. He goes into the pond to rescue the shepherdess and he he lays her down on the side of the lake and she opens her eyes and she screams again because he's the monster. And two two hunters show up and like start chasing him and shooting at him. And he gets captured by by the, this mob that appears and, and taken back to the town. He is not able to escape the rope bindings. But then they get him back to the village and they're like, put him in the dungeon. And they like strap him down to the chair binding his head back and like chains and you see the like the cops like hammering the chain the end of the chain into the stone and then literally the second he's left alone he just like breaks free almost (laughs) effortlessly from the chains and escapes again and 
goes back to the forest, and this time, as he's wandering through the forest, he hears Ave Maria being played on violin, and he goes up to the... He doesn't know what music is. But he likes it. And he goes up to this house, and there's an old man playing violin inside, and he goes outside because he hears the, so- the monster softly moaning in, in appreciation of the, of the music. And it goes outside and he's like, who's there? And he can't, he doesn't see anyone because he's blind. And he, uh, he goes back in and then goes back out. The monster is at the door and he can't see. So he can't see the monster looking all fucked up. And the monster can't speak. But the blind violinist invites him in to like, like take care of him. He, he, said, he feels that there's blood running down his arm. And he brings the monster in, and as he's bringing the monster in, he 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 goes on this little monologue about how he's been so lonely for so long, and he's been praying that God would send him a friend. And aren't they the perfect pair to be friends? Because he can't, one can't see, the other can't talk, and they, they can help each other out. And you need to rest, my friend, and puts him to bed. And then there's some seeds of. Of, of the violinist, like, teaching the monster words, like, good and bad and friend and and stuff. At one bread point, the monster... Bread and mon- wine. Yeah, bread, wine, and smoke. Smoke good. <laughs> and, like, teaches the, the monster to, to smoke cigars. Because at first he's scared because he's... Because, oh, flame, oh, but... It, no, smoking's good for you. <laughs> and, and summing up the view of the world that will drive him for the rest of the film... The monster says, Alone, bad, friend, good. Yeah. Which is very important. Because here's the thing. In the book, the reason that that Dr. Frankenstein starts building the monster a mate is because basically the monster's like, I will end your fucking existence if you i would just ruin your life like i'm not gonna kill you that will be the last thing i do after i've done everything else unless you make me a mate so that i can live like a dignified person like you and in this film pretorius comes in is like we must build him a mate so we can raise an army of <laughs> yeah and but also separately, the monster is like, I wish I had a mate. Yes. So particularly after some hunters show up and 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 they he runs away because they're like, it's the monster. We're gonna it's gonna kill you, old man. And the old man's like, what are you talking about? I, this is my friend. And and Frankenstein is you know he runs away and he ends up in this crypt where by coincidence Doctor Pretorius is Robinson Grave. He goes down there with two, with his two workmen, uh, his two henchmen. They, uh, they. Can I mention the the guy who is exactly like Fritz, except he's not Fritz because Fritz died. Yeah, and he doesn't have a hunchback, but he's still hunched over, and yeah. he makes clicking noises all the time, but doesn't have a walking stick. It's very. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the monster goes in, he 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 sees a pretty lady dead in a coffin, and then. He sees Pretorius and his his goons come in and watches from a distance. And Pretorius, like the goons, get the thing, get this like tomb open, and they're there for the bones. And Pretorius is like, "Yeah, now that this is open, you guys can leave. I'm gonna hang out here for a while because I like crypts." And he has a bottle of wine and two bits of bread. And I thought for some reason he knew that the monster was there, and that's why there was two bits of bread. But actually, they were both for him because there's a time skip, and. <laughs> Pretorius is drunk and 
the shot begins with him laughing as if in conversation, and then it as it opens up, you realize he's been having a lovely chat and a drink with the pile of bones that he has just stolen from the grave. And no, no, no. He's like laughing like he's just been told an amazing joke by his conversation partner when the seed starts. And then the monster comes over and Pretorius is like, ah, yes, my friend. I think we should team up to make sure Henry doesn't get cold feet. And so Pretorius goes to Henry's house where he and Elizabeth are about to leave because Henry does have cold feet about making a mate for the monster and also working with this obviously evil man. <laughs> 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 and Pretorius um, brings in the monster to show Henry, you know, that he's got muscle, I guess. But then he sends the monster out. And while, as he's closing the door, he says, now. And the monster goes and kidnaps Elizabeth and takes her somewhere, and Henry Torius is like to, to Henry, yeah, we just we just kidnapped your your wife now, I guess, at this point. I think they got married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did, yeah. Because the movie's called Bride of Frankenstein, and there's, there's two Brides of Frankenstein, if you, if you think about it. So yeah, we've got your wife, and you've got to finish making the new monster with me, and if you do that, we'll give you your wife back. And so Henry's like, fine. And he, there's, they go back to the ruined watchtower that Henry uses as lab in the first movie, and we get a extended version of the monster's creation scene from the first film. Like they do the creation scene for the first film again, but more. It's longer. There are way more like equipment involved, and lots more arc lightning and flames and stuff. They're just like, that's clearly what everybody liked the most about the first one, right? When, when <laughs> During the creation scene, there's lots of arc lightning and lights and flames and sparks and stuff. Let's let's just do that, but ten times more. Like there's, And I'm not saying this like to make fun of it. I think this is great. I think they're just like, what if, this, what if the iconic creation of the monster scene, but more? Just like longer, more sparks. Uh, kites are involved now. We have the unfurling of kites. To catch the lightning. In, in both films, contrary to how it's usually adapted, the monster is lifted up to the roof at a, a point in the procedure. But in, in The Bride of Frankenstein, the, the apparatus also comes down and it's this hu- like the huge laser zap thing with like glowing modules on it. And it's just way, there's way more stuff involved this time. Yeah. And it, it, there's a real sense of like increased grandeur. And they do the thing, and they bring the monster's mate to life, the bride. And the bride has crazy hair, as you all know. You all know the hair I'm talking about. She's 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 got the look. She, like, you, she's like just look at her. Yeah, she's got the Perfect. squiggly the squiggly white lines in her hair. And right after she's brought to life, the monster shows up and. She looks at him and screams, and he's like, She must hate me too! I'm gonna kill everyone here! Except for you, Henry. You can leave. For some reason, I'm letting you leave. It's his dad. I know. I know he's a shitty dad, but he's, you know, it's hard to, you know. But, but yeah, like, the, the bride screams, like, one time, and he's like, this was all pointless. I'm going to kill everyone and myself. And then he lets Henry leave, but then he pulls a lever that it, that, that, that Dr. Pretoria says, you fool, if you pull that, we'll all be blasted into atoms or some shit. Even though 
they didn't know what atoms were then, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and Henry leaves and is reunited with Elizabeth, and the monster pulls the explosion lever, and the watchtower explodes. End of film. I obviously don't care about um, anachronism, but I do just want to say the most anachronistic thing that that, that most maybe go, wait, what, what, when is this set? Was when in the first film, Henry has a pair of headphones. (laughs) Well before the transmission of sound had been invented. (laughs) And then in the next, in in Bride, they have phones. Like, they just have a phone. Well, you know... Which which is called... This electrical device, because they don't actually have phones. Pretorius has a part of the inventive phone. This this electrical device through which you can communicate. I've I've no idea what year these movies are set. And I don't give a shit. So there you go. So there's there's two things. Maybe three. So the first one is there's way more like Christian stuff in this and stuff about God and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, like everything Elizabeth says. Like Henry's like, I'll get. I don't have the quote, but I'll get the clip for her reaction to Henry saying, "I might continue my experiments." And she's like, "Henry, don't say those things. Don't think them. It's blasphemous and wicked. We are not meant to know those things." Yeah, and like at the start, <laughs> in that very first scene when Mary Shelley is like, people didn't realize this was a moral tale about how. You shouldn't. You shouldn't do this because God wouldn't like it. And in some ways, it is like integrated into like into the film's themes and stuff. Like I think about when the blind man and the monster eat the bread and wine. Yeah, it's like you know who else ate bread and wine? Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he didn't have a cigar. <laughs> he would have if he could. Yeah, but. On the other hand, how much of it is like Hayes Code era? Because something that's very interesting is that Frankenstein is very much pre-code, and this one was very much post-code or yeah. code era, yeah. I guess. And is that like j- just just for all the censors at home, you shouldn't make a Frankenstein's monster? <laughs> that's a bad <laughs> yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, or, or is it more organic than that? Do you think? I mean, the the that first scene, I'm You're not really hung up on the first scene. Yeah, I think the first scene's hilarious. It, I, it is funny. It's when I was watching. They it, recap was... the movie in case you haven't seen the first movie, and then Mary Shelley goes, "But it didn't end there." Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and then I... the new movie starts. To your question about the opening scene, uh, I don't think it was in the first... It was in anybody involved in this film's first draft of the film. (laughs) As to why it is in the final version, definitely some of that is... It seems definitely partially Hayes-motivated and telling censors, you know... It's not telling the audience what you're supposed to think about this. It is telling the dumb censors in Hollywood (laughs) what you're supposed to think about this. And openly mocking them 
for it because yeah. the editors who won't publish her book are obviously the <laughs> the censors in this scenario. Yeah. She's making fun yeah. of of the censors. The actual weirdest thing about the opening scene is that it, there's no corresponding closing scene. <laughs> I'm glad there's not a corresponding closing. I scene. mean, I I, I agree. I think it would- undermine the whole film if there was i i agree it is but it is very strange that <laughs> yeah that's that fair. not that's that fair. it's not that it's not actually a framing <laughs> device it's just a scene set a scene before it you know <laughs> that is set like like frankenstein was published in what like 1819 so this is a scene set in 1818 suggesting that the events of these books of these stories take place <laughs> earlier than that which makes the fact that <laughs> they have Henry, telephones uh, yeah yeah a bit weird but who gives a shit? It's, <laughs> it's it's here. The false division between pulp and proper sci-fi disappears because uh, Frankenstein was both book and a movie, or both pulp and um, and classic high works of, of science fiction horror. And and I'm 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 glad that that these films were were made both in a time and by a man. Who was not concerned with whether his films came off silly? Uh, <laughs> I I will make a sequel to the definitive horror film of this decade, and I will put little people in jars and silly cups, <laughs> and have one of them get picked up like on the end of a pencil by a by a normal sized man who's just annoyed at him. Um, they will never come up again. They will never reappear. It will not be clear what relationship they have to the big experiment or whatever. <laughs> but I'm going to put in a scene with a bunch of little little fairies and little fairy people in jars. Yeah. Good it, idea, James. You know what you're doing. Like, this is, as we've said, like, building on stuff that's in, in the novel that wasn't used in the first film. But it's like the general idea of the of the monster wanting a mate. That's, the, that's what's taken from the book. And sometimes they'll make they'll like they'll, there'll be like a reference to a scene like the, the the whole thing with the blind violet is it's obviously inspired by the monster making friends with the little girl yeah. and stuff but like he's a blind violinist who like goes on this he has this big speech about how lonely he is and how he's been praying for God to send him a friend and God has now sent him a friend the Frankenstein monster. It's, it's, well, the thing. Th- <laughs> The thing about the blind violinist is that him him and the monster are in love. Yes, yes. Which is the other big thing I wanted to talk about, which is that Bride of Frankenstein is uh, what critics and scholars would call gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's something ob- very obviously, like, homoromantic between the blind violinist and, and, and the monster... Their 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 brief domesticity together of 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 the, when, I love when the blind when when the violinist serves the monster soup, and as he's reaching in blindly to scoop at some soup with his bowl, the monster is like terrified for the blind guy because he's gonna burn himself because he's putting his head into a big pot on top of a fire and he's still not a hundred percent on fire yet. He's still working out fire. They're 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 both so gentle to each other. And even when when the hunters show up and they scare the monster away, there's never a moment where the blind man is like, oh, you're a monster? Fuck you. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he Yeah, like the hunters are leading him away at the end out of his house and he's going, But that was my friend. Like Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. It's like something yeah. Mole Man would say. <laughs> well you love Mole Man. No, you do. You're gay for Mole Man. You're gay for Mole Man. <laughs> no one's gay for Mole Man. But also, notably, he uses the same word for the bride as he does yeah. for the blind man, which is friend. And yeah. admittedly, he doesn't know that many words. Yes. But it's still he also does of not seem- note. Yeah, he, d- he doesn't seem like he's using friend for both those relationships, and he's he's looking for another word that he doesn't know yet. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a distinction in those relationships for him. Yeah. Which can be, can, can if you so choose, if you want to say these rela- he sees these relationships the same way, you can, you can see them both as sexless and about purely companionship. Or you can see the film in front of your eyes. <laughs> Where, 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 he's in love with the blind man and and the bride, and um, Doctor Pretorius a little. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor Pretorius is is the evil gay. Yeah, it's it's film. the evil gay versus the the good gay. Yeah. Like many or, many of films. <laughs> yes, and um, because he's separated from the blind violinist, the monster ends up falling under Pretorius's sway. Just to reiterate that he meets Pretorius while Pretorius is laughing, having a conversation <laughs> with a pile of bones. Like, <laughs> they could not lay on thicker how obviously evil Dr. Pretorius is. <laughs> um, and, and it's very interesting that Pretorius's pitch to the monster is, you help me and I'll give you a mate. An idea that the monster has only recently discovered of... Mm-hmm. of, of Mates, he's the only women he's ever met. Uh, he's killed most. Of them. <laughs> that is true. He also is it is it? I think it's in Bride where he says that he misses being dead. That like dead was was good and peaceful, and being alive was horrible. horrible. Yeah, yeah. He he he. He both says that he wishes he was still dead, and he says that he prefers the dead to the living. Like, he, he likes corpses more than people, which is totally fair, given the circumstances of his entire life to that point. Um, there's a lot more monster and a lot more Karloff in this, shockingly. Obviously... Not they, very much Bride. No, not a lot of Bride. The Bride shows up in the last second. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Even Elizabeth's not in it that much for yeah. the other Bride of the other Frankenstein. So, the, yeah, there's something really interesting about how... Absent women are from the film. Yeah. In terms of you know Elizabeth and the Bride certainly, and but what that creates is a lot of male intimacy, and I don't I like physical intimacy and emotional intimacy, like a lot of working in close quarters, like when they're working on 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 their creation together. Pretorius and and Henry are always like up in each other's face, like bent over, like a heart the heart beating, and like yeah, like yeah. Pretorius will be like kind of leaning over Henry in ways that are both like sinister because he's like looming over him but also there's there's an obvious like ease and intimacy between them like once they're working together they knew each other before they're working together again and there's um yeah Henry Henry while he's working is like so into it and when he's not (laughs) working he's like what the fuck have I 
was it Stella Knight stuff? Yeah, yeah. Which, um, I don't know, there's something very interesting thematically about Henry really enjoying going away with another man to create life. But then whenever he goes home to his wife, he's like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> I need to stop this thing that I keep doing. <laughs> God wouldn't like it. <laughs> Frankenstein's monster running off with loads of women. Why is Mike Gatting being so vehement about this? It's not something I associate with Frankenstein's monster. Didn't you know, Stu? Mike Gatting's wife ran off with the Frankensteins. It was in all the papers. Oh, right. There's no wonder he bears a grudge. No. Speaking of uh, the monster, we should talk a little about his bride, though she appears very briefly. Yeah. What a high-impact appearance, incidentally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, appear. yeah. She doesn't show up for like the last like six minutes or something of the yeah, film. Yeah, she's just right at the very, very end. And but you remember her. Yeah, you. like I can... First of all, the like the, the the instantly iconic hair, which I know is instantly iconic because I've seen it a million times despite this being my first time Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. The eye makeup, she can, she doesn't talk. She makes even and he makes even less noise than the monster. Yeah. So uh, she communicates a lot with her eyes in those scenes. And what I particularly loved about the bride, which is something I'd never heard of before, is that she moves like a bird. <laughs> I know, I'm not sure why. And she I, and she I, doesn't fly. She doesn't fly, but she like. Looks around and like you know when she turns her head she draws her head back when she turns her head she yeah, draws yeah, her head back yeah. slightly like a bird and she yeah. like has her eyes open and like leaning looking around <laughs> and I think she might flap her arms at one point I'm not a hundred percent but she she's very bird like in how she moves and to just the taking the care to make her that weird for such a brief <laughs> like really good attention to detail. Do you think that if Frankenstein Frankenstein's monster didn't freak out? That she could have learned to love him? Probably. The thing is, she has a brain. Does she have a mind? You know? Yeah, yeah. Especially because the brain was grown by Pretorius. Those little people seem to seem to sentient. That's fair. Which makes uh, keeping them in jars pretty fucked up, but there you yeah, go. Yeah, especially since they're like <laughs> fully sentient, like actual humans. They're just small. They have... It's a disability rights issue. They, uh... I mean, there's some of them seem more complex than the others. Like the the king is able to get out of a, the jar, and um, he's really horny, but also likes food. So we've got like multiple traits for him. The ballerina <laughs> just dances and only to one song. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 very true. That's very true. I need to ask you a very important question: the dark universe. Try it again. You're in charge of Universal for the duration of this question. Okay, modern day Universal, great. <laughs> you, you got you got Dark Universe it. For everyone at home, the Dark Universe was a extremely brief, <laughs> like shockingly like one film brief <laughs> attempt to do the Universal monster movies basically in the present, but like as action movies. Mm-hmm. To basically just to to do to do a cinematic universe with you know all those guys in it, starting with the Mummy in Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which no one liked. I need to and, issue a small correction. Okay. They actually tried with Dracula Untold. Oh my God! You're right. Starring Luke Evans as not Dracula, the character from the book, but. The historical Vlad the Impaler. 
who becomes but, Dracula in this in this version. And but, at the end of that movie, I believe you briefly see the vampire. No, no, no. The the vampire who turned him, who is played by Charles Dance, the English actor. He's like, now let the games begin. <laughs> But, wait, but is Dracula Untold in the same universe as Tom Cruise the Mummy, or was that a reboot? Yeah, so they scrapped Dracula Untold okay. from the canon and then re- restarted with the Mummy, which I have seen and which sucks <laughs> fucking ass. I hated it so much. I didn't even enjoy Russell Crowe being a lunatic in it. That's that's how bad it was. So, so do you think for a third time's the charm? do the dark universe i mean i've become very anti-cinematic universe yeah but this is the original one yeah they were doing it way back back in the 30s and 40s yeah at the, at the end of bride of frankenstein there's that that post-credit scene where where nick fury <laughs> says to the <laughs> to frankenstein and the bride of frankenstein i'm not i'm putting you want to join yeah i'm of two minds on the one hand i want to scream no no please Please don't stop. Leave me alone. On the other hand, I wouldn't. I would enjoy a new dark universe if it wasn't trying to be like a modern cinematic universe where everything connects <laughs> together. If it was just a classic cinematic universe, which I guess is is now a thing, uh, where they would just occasionally appear in each other's films and beat each other up, stuff like that. I would like, you know, like. Would you include the the recent Invisible Man in that universe? No, uh, because that's that's a, like I, this is no shade to the to the twenty twenty Invisible Man, which I love very much, but it is nar- like structurally and narratively, it is a superhero movie's ending. <laughs> like she's gonna go off and become the Invisible Woman and do more, um, more stuff. She's gonna um, join the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the other thing is, I, have you ever seen the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I've not, so and I know I, that may come as a surprise to people, but I've not. The the 2003 film adaptation of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a comic book by Alan Moore, the guy who did like Watchmen and loads of other classic comics. But most people will just know him from Watchmen, so I won't keep listing. And the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is basically like a literary superhero team that is made up of like characters from victorian fiction for the most part like alan quatermain from king solomon's mines and like captain nemo is in it and mina harker from from dracula and dorian gray and jekyll and hyde and and so on jekyll and hyde (laughs) they got them both i barely remember watching the the film on tv when i was young but it was it was very bad and a huge flop and made Sean Connery retire from acting because <laughs> he was given a choice between between playing Gandalf in Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings films and playing Alan Quatermain in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he understood the script to The League of oh, Extraordinary wow, Gentlemen up. more. So he picked that <laughs> over playing Gandalf. What a fucking idiot move. And yeah, he he retired after that. So there is a part of me that's like dark universe that builds to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen instead of instead of the Avengers. <laughs> okay. 
Good. One, that you watched Frankenstein, and two, that you watched Bride of Frankenstein, and three, that you watched Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm really glad that I watched both films and both films together. Uh, Watching them both together was was very fun. Like, there's there's a lot of things that are different between Frankenstein and, and the Bride of Frankenstein, but in the biggest sense... Bride, like Frankenstein is like a is, is pretty mannered and conventional narratively and and, yeah. and a lot of the characters are like kind of cutouts like especially Henry's dad <laughs> leave Henry's dad alone I will not he just, exactly. he just wants to drink champagne with the giggling maids I actually I didn't bring it up but I actually fucking hate Henry's dad and was like <laughs> wishing he would die the entire film it just annoyed me so much but getting to see the the difference between the the more conventional mannered Frankenstein and then the <laughs> very strange <laughs> and like in some ways the narrative is 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 quite simple, but in other more accurate ways the the events that happen between the monster breaking out of the dungeon and then meeting <laughs> Pretorius in the crypt like. Like oh, there's so much insane shit happens just between those two points, and like it's probably easy enough to to think to yourself that you never need to watch these because they have been so pillaged by pop culture after them that you've basically got the whole film in your head, and you do not, you don't, yeah. you should yeah. you should watch these. You I don't didn't have the little the little people in the jars. Yeah, I didn't I didn't love either of them. I enjoyed Bride of Frankenstein more. The Invisible Man's still unbeaten for me in terms of the the that that five year period where where James Whale invented horror. <laughs> uh, I'll have to watch the old Dark House now to round it to round it out. But yeah, I'm, of course I'm glad I watched them. Uh they were When you say that you didn't uh love them, is there anything in particular that like that you thought was like missing or that didn't work or I just I think for the most part, like the characters are generally weaker than the monster, and yeah. one of the reasons I prefer Bride of Frankenstein is just more it is just more monster. But also, even in Bride of Frankenstein, they're like compared to to the characters in the first film, and especially because so much of the first film is just those characters kind of standing around talking. Versus the second film, you have more monster, and also you have Pretorius, who is not a boring or dull character. And also, unlike in the first film. Henry's like growing madness as he due to his obsession is actually like minimally rendered on screen. You get to see more of that stuff in in Bride of Frankenstein and and, and what, Elizabeth. What about Frankenstein when he's like, "I have no need for God, for I am God," or whatever. Yeah, but then he, 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 he the actor doesn't get like a, a tenth as hysterical as he gets while just looking at a heart beating in a jar in Bride of Frankenstein. You know? <laughs> and he just looks so deranged. Whenever he's working with Pretorius in the second film, yeah, and yeah. weirdly, like Elizabeth is way less of a character in Bride of Frankenstein, but the actor playing her gets more to do because she just gets to do that one bit where she's screaming about death coming into the room. I'd like to take a moment to recommend to uh, 
late late period Karloff joints, mm. which are Comedy of Terrors, the only film to unite Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone, Vincent Price, and Peter Laurie, which also is hilarious, and Targets, which is a Peter Bogdanovich was a young whippersnapper and Boris Karloff had owed like a week's work to to Roger Corman and Peter Bogdanovich was like here's my idea and Boris was like I'll work as long as you want because that's a great idea and it's grateful and he plays a guy called like Boris Orlock or something yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) he plays an aging horror film star who yeah. used to be big and now just makes like cheapo. It, you you get it. Yeah, it's like when Adam Sandler in Funny People played a washed up former stand up comedian who'd long since sold out any artistic integrity. He had to appear in heartless, soulless comedy films with dumb jokes and lots of farting and shitting. It's it's weird that after Adam Sandler did that, he then continued to. If anything, if anything, he did not enter his true shit era until after appearing in Funny yeah, People. Yeah, like, yeah. He did Funny You're People and then like, that's my boy and Jack Chill. <laughs> like, I don't know. Personally, I think you should have just let yourself die. Honestly, man, what, what are you going to do now? Make another bullshit movie? Fuck another chick who doesn't like you? You know, that was your way out right there. Hmm. Now you're, you're fucking stuck. Next week, we... Fuck! 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 Next <laughs> Keep that in. Next episode, we will be watching and discussing The Bourne Identity. I think you said you're going to watch the whole trilogy, but we'll probably I just I probably watch... will, yeah, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll probably have something to say about the later films, but we've been, we've done so many double episodes that doing a triple episode at this point would just be ridiculous. It's a, it's an episode on The Bourne Identity in which we may discuss other Bourne movies. Next episode is is an interesting role reversal. Would you agree? Oh yeah, I'm. I mean, we've already done a bit with Akiru, but at least that was still a foreign language film from the fifties. I'm bringing you a modern, popular, successful mainstream action movie. <laughs> Me, Bender, starring Matt Damon. Yeah. And later in the year, there'll be a role reversal in the opposite direction. Perhaps. 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 Until next time. <laughs> I'm Karen Maloney. I'm Dean Buckley. The song was Bushdog by Alexander Nakarada. And this was the Sunday Present. And happy birthday to David Hyde Pierce. Our first fright flick is 1983's Frankenstein and the Harlem Globetrotters Meet the Mummy and the Washington Generals. If you watch closely, you might recognize a young Ray Romano. All right, Frankenstein, that's a three-second violation. No blame, Frankenstein. Me made from corpses of Denver Nuggets.